Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture from the spectator world. I'm your host, Teresa Mull, and I'm joined today by Jeff Mason. He's president and COO of the Piston Foundation. I met Jeff uh, at the Lime Rock Racetrack up in Connecticut earlier this year. We were both at the Vintage Races, and um, Jeff, you even let me sit in your race car that you take down in Mexico. We should probably talk about that a little later in the podcast. That was super awesome. But we talked about what your foundation does, and here at The Spectator, we talk a lot about the economy and skilled workers, labor, making things in the U.S. again. And just, I've written about this many times. I come from a place in the country, central Pennsylvania, where we still have a pretty skilled workforce and people who are willing and able to work and kind of have old skills. But what you're doing is teaching young people how to do kind of more old-fashioned, hands-on labor that is very rewarding. They get to work on beautiful old machines. So tell us about the Piston Foundation and exactly what you guys do. Well, thanks, Teresa. It's great to be here with you. And it was fun to meet you at Lime Rock. And I do have a great picture of you sitting in my race car. So. Yes, I look so cool. I didn't didn't make it go, unfortunately, but maybe we can change that next time. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. For sure. I think, I don't know why we didn't, why we didn't start it up. But either way, since that time, that car has gone down to Mexico, raced the Carrera Panamericana. We did pretty well. And we can talk about all that stuff later on. The Piston Foundation is a public charity that exists to bring more young people into the trades of the collector car industry. And the collector car industry is everything you think it is, right? It's, it, it, it's vintage, it's classic, it's modern classic, it's current collector cars. It's all those beautiful cars that have to be maintained by hand and that require technicians with skill that is beyond you know, the dealership technician and which is, I loved your phrase, old skills. It really is. It's rooted in old skills. It can be as old as, you know, hand making body panels, the way, you know, all, you know, all of our sort of vintage cars, the forties, the fifties were made, but it can also be, you know, sort of that engineering skills, engine building skills, all of, um, the race engineering skills, those are all skilled trades. And those skills are not, are, are just different than what you'll learn for modern cars. And that whole area of automotive has been slowly graying, you know, and uh, it's really, you know, this, this idea of classic cars, this, this, this collector car world really didn't start until the fifties. And post-World War II, we have the hot rod movement, the hot rod generation. And suddenly, you know, you've got this whole group of people who have mechanical skill 
Now Detroit is making afford- more affordable cars. You know, American ingenuity, creativity just takes hold. And people think like, wow, you know, young people, you know, who know how to work on an engine, they think the first thing they think is how fast can I make it go? So that generation really built this industry and built what we know today as, you know, the restoration world, the classic car world. It, it really is, the, you know, the founders of that are people who grew up through that time, who, you know, were coming of age in the 40s and 50s. And then, you know, this became their passion and they sustained it. Well, you know, of course, that generation is retiring and there is, you know, there's been a disconnect with the generations behind them. And so there has not been a steady replacement of that workforce. And now it's at a critical point where we're beginning to lose skills because people are retiring. I say uh, the most, the biggest threat to the collector car world is a 65 year old technician who's about to retire, you know, because they're retiring and they don't have a young person behind them who, who they've been able to pass those skills onto. So the Piston Foundation is trying to break that cycle and we are creating a career path that young people can take when they have an interest in, in classic cars, in collector cars, that they can see a path to get into the industry as a career. And for some, that might be an alternative to a four-year college being their first step. For others, it might be a career change. It might be, you know, a second step. They've already been out in the workforce as a technician, but they've, you know, they want to focus in now on, on restoration. Hey, I've been working in a a dealership for a couple of years. That was my start. Now I really want to do what I, you know, the thing I dream about, which is working on, you know, classic cars. And a lot of what you do too is also introducing young people to this world. You know, I think that's something that is maybe a problem in a lot of other industries. Similarly, that kids just, it doesn't occur to them that they can do this type of thing. And if it does, they think of it as like, oh, you're covered in grease, you're dirty, you're cranking your arm and our odd angles, you know, it's just the same thing every day. It's boring. It's nasty work. Why would I want to do that? It's hard. I would rather sit in front of a computer inside or something like that. So they don't realize the artistry involved and the reward and the challenge and all the beautiful things involved in a career like this. So a lot of what I understand the Piston Foundation does is also open the eyes of young people to something that might not have occurred to them before, a new kind of career. I need to get you as a part of our team because you did, that was a beautiful explanation of, <laughs> of, you know, what is attractive about this. And there certainly is, I feel, I see it, you know, a kind of a, a, a recognition now that we have lost a little something in our culture and in, in our job opportunities. We're definitely losing some hands. We've lost some hands on careers and we're now sort of saying, whoa, 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 you know, we're actually kind of missing those. And, and I think that that is fundamental to who we are as, as humans. And we, you know, we do, those are engaging, challenging careers that do bring a lot of rewards. And it's very satisfying to do that work when you learn to do it well. And the journey towards that, you know, that, that mastery is also, you know, really engaging and really challenging and it's kind of baked into who we are as humans. And so I'm not, surprised that we're sort of, you know, you always sort of, you you miss it when it's gone. And so you're absolutely right about awareness. And there was a great 
piece of research that was put out by Stanley Black and Decker called the Maker Index, and uh, was published in the spring of 2022. And one of the key findings was that awareness is the first stumbling block for young people choosing a, a, a trade career. And this, this research was across all trades, and a lot of it was around the building trades, which makes sense for Stanley Black & Decker. But they also own some Mac tools, which is you know, deeply embedded in the automotive world. So they're, they're in this with us as well. And so here's what's happening the parents of young people who are helping them make their early career decisions and, and set some early directions and choices, their parent parents don't know anybody in the trades. So the kid with an interest, whether it's in carpentry or classic cars has probably never spoken to a professional who works in that trade. So, you know, so that's the first gap because if, if I look, you know, take my own daughter, you know, she said, Hey, I want to be a pop star. Well, that's pretty easy to, to model because like I can see pop stars everywhere. Right. So if I'm thinking about what I want to do, I can look out there and be like, Oh yeah, that's what I want to do. So where are kids seeing, you know, those, those tradespeople and getting a sense of what their professions are like and understanding all the value that's created there and being like, you know, they don't have a, a person to model themselves after in that regard. So we've got some pro, a new program to kind of address that issue. But awareness of a career is a fundamental hurdle that we need to help young people get past. There's certainly tremendous awareness of, amongst young people. You know, and, I, and here I'm talking about like Gen Z Gen A, right? Millennials. Is that the next one, Gen A? I was wondering what was going to happen. Yeah, Gen A. Gen <laughs> A. Yep. Okay. Which makes it sound like you're saying Jenny. Uh, yeah. there's, there's some old Gen joke A. in the media. Oh, Gen A. Yeah, yeah like yeah. Uh, Forrest Gump. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> which makes me laugh every time I say it. But yeah, Gen Z, Gen A. You know, they are modding cars in Forza Horizon, right? Like these kids know cars. They know cars and they're, you know, obviously social media is, is, gives them a chance to see a lot, hear a lot, learn a lot about cars that are, you know, new and old. What they don't see is that that can be a career. What they don't see is a person who's already, you know, that, uh, you know, a 20 year old, a 30 year old, someone they can sort of imagine themselves being, they don't see that person working in the industry today and so that they have that opportunity to say, you know what, that's what I want to do. So they don't have a way to get to turn their interest into sort of a, a career idea because they just don't know that exists. And that that's, that's really the, what we see as the first step. Do you find it challenging to get all these youngins interested in old things in general? Do they see a value in vintage antique collector cars. I'm sure, you know, a lot of them are pretty expensive and that's kind of exciting to kids. You know, this is a million dollar car, whatever it is. But I've heard, I talked to one of your friends at Lime Rock who said that all kids want these days is basically like a cell phone on wheels, you know, the Tesla mm -hmm. or what mm -hmm. kind of infotainment system it has. So obviously, you know, I think you and I are kind of 
upset about this trend, but it's understandable. You know, that's what kids <laughs> grew up with. That's what's around them. That's what's new and hip. You know, if we were their age, maybe we would be into that too. But how do you get them to say, yeah, this doesn't have like Bluetooth, but it's from 1967 and, you know, it has all this other cool stuff. Like how do you, how do you just get kids to appreciate stuff, I guess? You know, I don't actually have the complaint answer to that because I'm not an expert, you know. Is your daughter just, interested in old stuff or did she just kind of, she's probably been around it. So she she's has absorbed 19. some. Yeah. So she's, yeah, she's definitely rubbed off. Although there are things that I find, well, I can speak to my own experience and what I do see happening with young people and a couple of entry points that, that give me optimism. So when, when I was young, <laughs> isn't that a, isn't that a, Terrible way to start off. Yeah, whenever when you I said Gen young, A, I was like, oh, now I think there's like two or three generations behind me. I was like, oh, yeah, geez. Whenever they yeah, add a new one, yeah. you know, you're like, oh, yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you feel it. You definitely mm -hmm. feel the, the weight pushing you towards the grave, I think. So I look at things like music. So it, this, this, is, this happens all the time. A person, a young person my generation, your generation, my daughter's generation gets interested in music. And, you know, for a lot of us, you know, even casually, it's something that we invest a lot of time in, we feel really connected to, and you get connected to an artist and then, you know, you, you really, really dig it. And then you start to, you have this question like, well, where did that come from? You know, and, and a lot of artists are very, you know, they're, they're pulling influences from from lots of different places. And some of them are very upfront about kind of who their influences are. And so, you know, when you hear that, you know, Ed Sheeran is, when a young person hears Ed Sheeran was influenced by the Beach Boys, you know, the really curious ones go, well, who are the Beach Boys? And so they go and they like, how, how easy is it to find that answer now? Right. Bang, bang, bang on YouTube. I can listen to the, Beach Boys top 10 hits. And then, the, you know, then you go like, oh, and what maybe, you know, they get really into the Beast Boys for, and then, and they, they, they read something where, you know, the Beach Boys say, you know, someone asked them, well, where, what influenced you? And they say, well, you know, Motown influenced us. And then kids are like, well, what's Motown? You know, so that, so you just end up going backwards because you're following this thread that is is connected to something that's current to you, Ed Sheeran, but suddenly you're all the way back in time and and connected directly to to you know the the legacy of it, the history of it. I think the same thing happens with cars. I think it's a very natural thing uh, to happen. And today, when we look at what's happening with EVs, it's it's even easier to pull the past forward because you can say, you know, there's you have more options with a classic car than you've ever had before. You know, you certainly could take, you know, you've got a great MGA and you're like, well, I want it to go faster. Okay, well, you can certainly modify that and make it go faster and make it handle better and do all the things that it couldn't do when it was built, right? And you can just use, you know, modern, you can use auto technology from the 90s to do that. But now you can also bring that car, you know, into as an electric vehicle, right? And so you can carry that 
even further than you can ever you been able to before. And so I think that opens up some new paths, but I think that inherent curiosity of going backwards as to understand where things came from is again, I think it's kind of one of those things that gets baked into us. It certainly is reliant on the curiosity of the person, but that's a foot for, for people who work with their hands, curiosity, intellectual curiosity, that drive to understand that drive to know is, is an essential part of their makeup and is, and you can't do the, any of those jobs without it. So I, I think that that's going to carry, I still think there's a lot of human nature in this and we just have to make sure that the, the pathways are there to, to get people from interest to career. And, and be, you know, the, between those two things, there's, you know, education and hands-on training, right? Because that's what you need to, you know, really live those things and learn those things. I don't think there's any like, you know, human nature blocks to, to this. I, I think it's all just kind of progress and economics that have created this situation. I'm wondering about that as far as job security goes. I'm guessing it's a pretty stable career and one that could be very lucrative if you're good at what you do, because as you said, you know, there's a limited number of people who have these skills and a limited, at least for now, until you guys get a hold of our nation's youth, number of kids who are interested in this career. And I spoke to a man a few weeks ago about the changing ways in which people are investing now that the stock market is so crazy. There's so much turmoil in the world, the COVID supply chain shortages, the war in Ukraine, all these things, people are investing in alternative, a lot of times I call them sure. like fun investments. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. This man and I spoke about antique firearms and historic firearms yeah. and even just stuff related to that, like war memorabilia, things like that, you know, stuff they're not making anymore and you can't get anywhere. So I'm, and I know that that's similar with luxury cars, at least high end ones. And I'm assuming that it's the same with old cars, you know, things that they're not, they don't make anymore and um, they're becoming rarer and more collectible. So that means that people who are able to work on them, fix them, refurbish them are going to be in higher demand too. So is that something you tell kids, like if you want a rewarding career that's going to be in demand and is increasingly in demand and that you're going to get paid really well for, <laughs> this is what you want to do. Yeah. There's definitely an economic picture there that is true. I mean, you know, Classic cars are an asset class now, just like art is. And they weren't always that, but they are today. And that's really what's driving the value. And anybody who is involved in the classic car market will tell you the same thing. And you can look at Sports Car Market Magazine to track all of those things. You can look at Bring a Trailer, all the auctions there, you know, uh, the cars, you know, popular cars, you know, mid-70s. Porsche 911s that, you know, you used to be able to buy 20 years ago for, boy, you might even be able to spend 10 grand on one. And, you know, that same car today is 70, 90, a hundred plus, depending on, you know, all the variables, but the growth has been tremendous in the value because they are now assets for people. They are, there's also been, you know, a huge you know, the whole, well, my generation, Gen X is kind of, we've been in that world for a little bit, but the millennials came in 
and had definitely had, you know, money to spend. And, you know, they've, they've gone in and, and bought what they're interested in, which means, you know, things like, you know, Ford F-150s are now, you know, you know, vintage F-150s are, are really popular and really expensive, you know, you know, early Broncos are really expensive, you know, the whole Japanese uh, domestic market car cars, things that, you know, all the, the Mitsubishis and, and uh, were, are extraordinarily, you know, early Nissans like NSXs. Oh my God. You know, those cars are crazy. And that lives in what, you know, somewhat called like the Radwood space, right? It's these eighties cars, right? Because they, they grew up with them. So, you know, those cars were not valuable before they are today because people, you know, they buy the cars they always dreamed of when they were kids, when they suddenly have money to do it. So there is, oh, there's rising values for cars as an asset class that definitely creates economic opportunity for anybody who can maintain those cars. That's, that's an absolute, that's always been the case. And with the values rising, the opportunities, you know, for earning a living, maintaining those cars becomes higher as well. You know, the most, most collectors own, I think Haggerty says 1.2 cars. So, you know, the guys with the million dollar Ferraris, they're still rare, right? There's more million dollar Ferraris than there used to be because the market's gone up. But, you know, most, most people working in restoration, working in collector car service, they're going to be dealing with the collector that owns one or two or three. They're not dealing with the mega collections. So when you talk about, you know, what are the, the income opportunities, what are the earning opportunities in the career, you've really got to deal with sort of, you know, what happens at the local level. You know, you can certainly point to the, the high tickets uh, items that, you know, people are working on or managing collections, but, you know, to be realistic, you've got to say, can you, you know, can you earn a hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, maintaining, you know, BMW M3s from the eighties? Yes, you can. You know, if you can, if you can hone your skills, become, you know, a reliable, trusted technician in a shop or on your own. Yes. You, you can, you can make a good living and be in control of that for sure. I wonder about, uh, also it just occurred to me getting parts for these vehicles. I know that you can source them from, you know, scrap yards, from other car dealerships, things like that. But I'm sure that's becoming more and more difficult. Is there any chance that this could spawn a parts maker? I don't know <laughs> what the term yeah. is, but a company that specializes in remaking old parts for old cars. I'm sure that'll be already done too. Already there. People I'm are so already living, living this, right? And, and <laughs> yeah. so, and this is a really cross, this is a really interesting crossover because early in the 2000s, we had the, the maker movement and, you know, technology drove that because we have, you know, we've got CAD, we've got um, CNC machining is now, you know, went from, you know, the rarefied of, you know, military production to, you know, by the early 2000s, you've got, you know, CNC machines, like, what is it, three axis, four axis CNC machines being available in like local technical schools. So, you know. And, and the ubiquity of those in industry meant that, you know, people had to be trained to run those. So those fabrication techniques 
then you take the maker movement, which put 3D printers on desktops. And, you know, while that maker movement seems to have crested a few years ago, the technology of 3D printing has continued to march on and steadily advanced to where we've got new materials. We're even printing with metal. They've, they've increased scale. They've got 3D printers that are printing like, you know, home foundations, right? So innovation is, has taken over that you now have for, for, particularly for, you know, vintage cars where the parts do not exist anymore, right? All the parts that have ever existed have already been reconditioned, you know, are in service or they've just been lost, right? You know, that there are no more like news. There's no more reconditions to be had, right? So, so if you're going to restore that car, you're going to have to create new parts. And they're doing that with 3D printing. They're doing that with, you know, like four axis, five axis machining, building them, creating them from scratch. And there's definitely industries that built, that build up around all of those things, right? When there's a demand. That I think, particularly for young people who have who have computer skills, who are digital natives, the idea that they can bring those into restoration shops today, where those skills don't naturally exist, right? So you've got I've got a shop of you know sixty year olds who know how to form a panel body panel out of aluminum by hand. But they used to, the, the, the technique was they build a wooden buck to get for the shape, to get the shape of that panel. And that was how it was originally built. So to, to remake it from zero, they'd have to build that buck or find that buck. That's a really expensive and difficult thing to do. Well, now what shops are doing is, let's say one side of the car is good, one side of the car is bad. They scan, 3D scan the good side to get the shape of the panel. and they're now shaped, you know, then, then they can build a buck in fiberglass and plastic. I'm not sure exactly what material they use. They're not building a, a wooden buck. They're scanning it for accuracy, building a buck out of, uh, it might be polyurethane, some, some type of rigid plastic. Now they're shaping that way. So shop, you know, craftspeople are innovators themselves and they're always looking to be efficient. So using digital tools is a natural for them if they have those skills, if that feels comfortable. And young people coming into restoration shops bring that with them, right? So there's a whole world there. Just it's, it's parts, but it's also the work, you know, the shop floor, how things get made is changing. And, you know, young people have a role to play in all of those new technologies that are changing how things get made now. Wow, thank you for letting me know that. You've just uh, warmed my heart. That's that's good news. You know, I yeah. I can get pretty depressed about these things, and I go to places like Lime Rock, and I see all these gorgeous vintage cars, and I I panic a little bit about their future. But you've made me feel better. Yeah, you know, some of those cars, you've got to think, okay, if it really is an asset, there is value in maintaining it as it is, and and you know, restoring it, maintaining it the way it was done. Right. And so a, a 3d manufactured part on that car, I'm thinking of like the, the Maserati, a very special Maserati, a birdcage Maserati that was at Lime Rock that weekend. Okay. So if you're not putting an original part on that car, 
you're definitely, the value is going to start to drop, right? That's a car that has to be, if you want to maintain what it is and what it represents, you're going to always restore that to original. Most vintage cars are not like that, right? Most of them are not million dollar Ferraris, right? So, you know, it's either keep the car on the other, use, you know, a non-original part and keep the car on the road and keep enjoying it or don't, <laughs> you know, like for a lot of makes and marks, that's, that's, you know, that's where you're at. It's like, so people, of course, are like the driving force is to uh, enjoy these cars, maintain them in our lives. That's what we want. That's what keeps the passion alive. So the idea that you're using a, you know, a non-original part is really not a big deal. Yeah, I was amazed by that. I said to my friend who was with me how these people drove these cars. They raced them. They they mm-hmm. were putting mm-hmm. pedal to the metal and driving them hard like they were designed to be. And I was like, yeah. wow, yeah. I didn't really expect that. I thought they just kind of put around like a parade. But they're like, no, this this is a race car. I'm going to race it. Yeah. So that was really cool to see. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and if they crash, it's, it's a big deal. But, you know, those those collectors have the resources to put it back to to write again because it does happen those cars do crash but you know that just like the, the maserati we were we were talking about you know that car was a race car it was made as a race car so you know it's that counterintuitive thing like if you really want to maintain it at in its best condition it's got to be driven and it's got to be driven hard every now and then you know so uh, something a little depressing for just a second before we finish up with you telling us your uh, Mexico adventure. What what do you see happening to, uh, you know, obviously you and I appreciate old cars. We see the value they provide to society, just to, mm-hmm. uh, to life in general. You know, your heart kind of skips a beat when you see one of these beautiful old cars going down the road. You go to something like the vintage races and hear them and, and get to touch them and smell them and all that great stuff. But um, for people who maybe haven't experienced that or don't really get it, what is lost, not just with the skills that it takes to restore a car like that, but in not having a skilled labor force in general, not just for cars, but for all sorts of industries that require skilled labor? Um, what do you think that does to America if we we lose that even more than we already have? Why is work like that of the Piston Foundation so important to our culture and our country's well-being? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it the answer to it what we lose is both economic and cultural. So skilled trades people are very bright, very curious, they're knowledge seekers, they're continual learners, they're innovators, they're entrepreneurs. And there is a tremendous amount of economic value that's driven by the work that they do and new value creation in all the industries that, that use skilled labor. So, you know, again, I I can really just, I could speak mostly from my professional background and, and, you know, the automotive world, you know, people, many people who start off in a skilled trade move forward to manage businesses, start new businesses, 
teach other people the trade and employ other people. So if you if you remove that piece, you're you're removing the opportunity for a lot of economic value to be created locally. And because that's where all of that happens. So I think and then you know then you've taken away the opportunity which I think gets into this the cultural aspect you lose the opportunity to drive a certain kind of of innovation a certain kind of entrepreneurialism in our population as a whole you know if not everybody is going to succeed in innovating in with digital tools some people clearly right the, the, the whole computer revolution was based on that but that's still a small part of the world in terms of total number of people who who have that mindset and, and can develop that mindset and can excel in those places there's a lot of us that just aren't that and you know where will those people be inspired to innovate where will they be inspired to be entrepreneurial where will you know where will they be inspired to teach and so i think what we lose is something very human which is working with you know working thinking with our hands right taking taking creative thought abstract thought and 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 turning it into something in the physical world that really is what we're all about that's regardless of of how powerful the computing revolution is today it's on the scale of human evolution it's still just a tiny fraction right we we are not a species evolved to compute right we're a, we're a species evolved to live in the world you know interact with the world we take idea our great superpower right over other species is we can take abstract thought and we're aware of our own consciousness, but we can take that abstract thought and turn it into things in the real world. We can create art. We can create meaning and value from ideas. That's what we do. I don't know what the world looks like when humans are, when that is taken away, when that's just a hobby. You know, I, 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 I don't, I would not look forward to that world. So so again, again, I've said it so many times, it's probably, it sounds like a broken record. There's something very human about working with your hands. There's something that I think that that is at the heart of why these careers are satisfying. These careers can't, skill trades careers can't be what they used to be. And when you look at the construction trades in particular, there's a tremendous amount of technology that is used in those trades now. So they're very modernized still at the center of them is always a human with hard skills who is taking abstract things and making them real. That I don't think we will ever walk away from. And I think we have for a while. Um, and I, again, is where kind of where we started. I feel like people are recognizing that we're missing what we've, what we've lost and we're now concerned enough about it to put some effort into bringing it back to us. Yeah, I agree. I think there's somewhat of a 
techno revolution where people are craving that, you know, they're tired of just pressing buttons and letting computers do things for them. And there's so much science showing how doing things with your hand, you know, it stimulates so much of what you, like you said, what it means to be a human, you know, you're using your eyes, you're, you're smelling the product that you're touching, you're feeling it, you know, you're listening to the sound it makes all of these things, like all of your senses are, are turned on. And it's just, just uh, getting your brain firing on all, all, all cylinders. There we go. Nice car pun. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I Man, think also, yeah. It, yeah. Got it in. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And also just as far as culture goes, you know, things made in the U.S. or the Detroit Piston, you know, I guess that's a basketball team, but, you know, things that are like innovated here in America, you just yes. have that pride of place. You would be able to see mm-hmm. that go off the assembly line and say, I made that or I designed that. That's just, that gives such a boost to the community and to to the person and to the country as a whole. I think that's something we are missing. Um, but uh, I won't keep you all day, though I would love to. Let's uh, let's hear about your adventure in Mexico. You told me a little bit about it at Lime Rock, but uh, it sounded grueling and amazing. And yeah, tell us all about it. Yeah. So this is one of the ways I'm connected to the automotive world. So back in late 2016, my older brother got this crazy idea to race a seven-day road rally in Mexico, which is called the Carrera Panamericana. And it has been, it was originally raced in 1950 to 54, and then ended for safety reasons. Too many people were dying. And then in 88, it was brought back as vintage rally. So pre-1975 cars with modern safety systems that the race has continued every year since that time. So I think this year was the 35th anniversary. And it is just an amazing cultural event in Mexico. It races seven days. This year's course was 2,400 miles. So it races city to city from the south of Mexico to the north. And it's run like like other modern rallies. You could look at World Rally or any of the European Rally series where each day is a stage. Each stage is broken up into sections. There are speed sections, which are raced at speed on closed roads, and you're racing for the, the lowest time. And then there's transit sections that connect the speed sections, and those are you're transiting on open public roads. And you have to navigate yourself to the start of the next speed stage and arrive within a 60 second window. Otherwise you get a time penalty. So you can't be early, you can't be late and you get it or you get a time penalty. So the race is won by having the lowest elapsed speed stage times. So the fastest car wins that and making no mistakes in your navigation, your transit navigation and having no time penalties. Um, so over seven days and 2,400 miles of racing, that uh, becomes increasingly more difficult to both main, you know, to maintain you know, high performance on both those things. And it's an amateur race. Are you and your brother still on speaking terms? Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's great. It's actually the rally driving experience. Right. So this is a rally drive, rally so we've got both a driver and a co-driver or a navigator and I'm the navigator and my brother's the driver because 
he's always been faster than me as a driver, and I've always been better at telling him what to do. <laughs> so there you go. At least you know um, your roles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and it it really is. It is. It is very much like any other team. There are very specific roles that each of us play in the car and and in the team at large. So we race. We've got a crew of three that supports us through the race, city to city, and. They, the, the crew itself plays a crucial role in maintaining the car because that one of the mantras of, of endurance rally racing is, you know, preserve the car. You don't get to the finish if you don't have, you know, without preserving the car because it is a, it is a grueling event for the car and you end up, you know, replacing gearboxes along the way. And there's always major repairs going on, uh, on cars at night in order to prepare them for the next day. So good thing you're training up all those piston foundation kids I know. and your crew team in the next several years. <laughs> well, this is interesting. We had a new crew member with us, a young technician named Ethan, and this is something that a lot of people, a lot of young people don't recognize about the industry. So, it's very very common for technicians that work on vin- in vintage racing to travel with the car and support the car at different different races, right? So that Maserati we talked about at Lime Rock has a mechanic that travels with that car, right? That team, that car is supported by people who know that car, the people who maintain it. So it becomes a, a tremendous travel opportunity for them. And our, our crew chief, a fellow named Tim Ritchie, uh, who runs Vintage Racing Services up in Stratford, Connecticut, you know, Tim's been around the world, supporting race cars. You know, he's, he's a, he's a driver himself and a, and a car builder, but you know, he, he, you know, he traveled all around with all kinds of cars and has, you know, a very rich, it's a very rich life to live when you're doing that. I mean, the idea, Hey, do you want to come to Mexico with me for two weeks and support this race car, you know, and, and see Mexico from, you know, from this perspective. And for Ethan, it was like total eye-opening experience, but a wonderful one for him. You know, it's, it's, it's a very rich professional life when you're doing that. And so, you know, working in the collector car world, particularly if you get connected to racing or to people who are showing cars and concours, you know, involves travel and supporting the car and, and all of that. And so it's, it's a great aspect of the job. Well, yeah, um, I can think of worse career paths than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's you know, it's oh, again, it's hard work, you know, but but it's rewarding. So, so we went down to Mexico this year. We raced well. Every race presents its own challenges. Uh, we had some technical issues that ended our day one early, which meant we took some time penalties, which meant we couldn't actually achieve our goal of of getting on the overall podium for our class of car. But we raced the heck out of it for the other six days and, you know, got some wins and, and had a great time doing it. Nice. How many cars would you estimate are in this event? This year's event was small. It was, it was only 47 and the years past we began racing in 2018, there were twice that many. So the pandemic really reduced the total number of cars, you know, rate teams come from around the world to race the Cadetta. So from Europe, from Asia and South America. So it's a very international field. That part of it is reduced a little bit because of the pandemic and, you know, not being completely over, but uh, it's still an amazing group of cars. You'll see some amazing things there. And the cars racing classes from the, the fastest cars, which are, you know, 
650 horsepower, you know, V8 monsters, all naturally aspirated, no, no fuel injection down to the smallest, like, you know, we race in the two liter class. So we're racing, we race a 65 Volvo Amazon, the car you, you, uh, sat in. That's, we call that the Mescalero. That's the name of that car purpose built for the Carrera, but it's a two liter four cylinder, uh, Volvo engine, you know, rally tuned and, you know, built for, built for purpose. And then there's a less than two liter class cars like, uh, you know, minis racing in that Austin Healy's little bug eyed sprites and things like that. that race there. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty wide variety of cars. A lot of Porsche 911s, the 911, you know, Porsche, the, the badge of Carrera, like a Porsche 911 Carrera comes from the Carrera Panamericana. That's Porsche has been involved with the race for many, many years since, since its origins. So uh, it's a great race for car lovers and the race is, is supported by Mexican fans, you know, from at every, at every, almost at every turn. I mean, there are literally people that, you know, you're driving through these, you know, small towns or these, these, you know, very off the map places as you're, as you're racing through the mountains and there's, there's always fans everywhere. And in the cities in Mexico, like coming into Mexico city, where we get to literally drive right into the center of the city on, on, a, on closed roads, which they say even, even the president doesn't get that. There was, I don't know that they estimate over 150,000 people on the Alameda, right by the, the Bell Arts Center there in the center of Mexico, 150,000 people there to see the race. Just, I mean, incredible. It's an incredible experience and an incredible cultural gem for for the country of Mexico, it has, you know, a lot of significance for, for them. And it represents, you know, so much of, about what, you know, who Mexicans are and what Mexican culture is about. They love, love racing, love the grit, love, you know, love a, a great courageous racing driver that that's definitely a part of Mexican culture. Sounds awesome. I don't know much about engines, but if you need a press secretary to follow you around, let me know. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that actually, yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk about that. I'll be the your one thing, spokesman. I don't yeah, know Spanish either. So sorry. Well, we can work around, we can work around that. You know, okay. one of the things we started doing, which was, is an offshoot of this racing is we started making films about this. So uh, our, 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 our team and our, and our production company is called Driving La Carrera. And in 2019, we released our first film called Rally Brothers, which was about our experience racing that year, which had some big drama. And I, I won't spoil the, the, I won't spoil the film for you. But then in the, the following years, we made films about two other teams, the first GT40 to race in the Carrera Panamericana, which was a heavily modified GT40 replica, really toughened up to be able to withstand the Carrera, but, uh, you know, tremendously loved car. I mean, that car cannot go anywhere in Mexico without being swarmed. It's a beautiful Gulf blue. That film was called GT40 Panamericano. And then another film called Carrera Passion about Angelica Fuentes, who is an international co-driver. She's won the Carrera twice, 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 I believe. She's won Pike Peak, Pike's Peak Hill Climb, she has raced in many different classes. She was a, 
a driving champion when she was a, a teenage girl in Mexico, the first in in first woman to win a driving championship in Mexico, and she's uh, just this awesome, warm, engaging person who is out there doing really cool stuff, and and it's an inspiration for a, a lot of a lot of a lot of people in Mexico, particularly you know girls and women who want to get into motorsport. Nice. Well, I'll have to check those out. Well, thanks, Jeff, for everything that you are doing for old cars and for young people, old cars and yeah, young people. Yeah, that's it. Old, par- <laughs> old cars and young people. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can learn more about the Piston Foundation if they're a young person or know a young person who would like to perhaps pursue one of your scholarships or if they are someone who'd like to contribute to the cause they can where they can go to learn more? Yeah, they can go to pistonfoundation.org and there they can find information about our scholarships. They can apply for a scholarship there. They can find information about our apprenticeship program. And also you can donate there on the website, just smash the big red donate button. And all the our, those funds go directly to support scholarship. Young people who are taking their first step going into a tech school for a two-year, four-year tech school we provide tuition assistance for them to get through that. And then our apprenticeship program, which places young people in in apprenticeships, in shops to begin their careers. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook as Piston Foundation, at Piston Foundation, same on LinkedIn and Twitter. So I think we're most active on Facebook and Instagram. So if you want to kind of see and follow what we're up to, events that we're at, meet some of the scholars, that's the place to do it on on Instagram and Facebook at at Piston Foundation or pistonfoundation.org to learn more about our programs or to become part of the community and and, uh, support our, our programs with a gift of any size. Thank you for listening to this episode of The District. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the U.S. edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, visit spectatorworld.com.